we're in week three of our series called um, The Gathering, and this is Thanksgiving week, but it's not necessarily a Thanksgiving message, although we could probably make a Thanksgiving message out of about anything, right, from the Word of God, but specifically it's not. If you missed week one or two, please go back, check out uh, those online, it's right here, newlifecanton.com forward slash uh, sermons. Check those out or on the app. You can also watch the Next Level talk at the same place. Now, for the benefit of those who weren't here, I need to review one foundational piece of information or you're not going to know what's going on. Now, those of you who have been here could probably teach this part of the sermon by now. But the majority of your English New Testament was a direct translation from the original Greek language. A direct translation from the original Greek language, except for one very important word, church. It was not a translation, it was a, help me, substitution. It's a different word. And the term church is a religious term. The the word that Jesus actually used was not a religious term at all. But the religious men who were translating in the 1500s from Greek to English, they got to this word and they thought, surely that's not what Jesus meant. <laughs> so they changed it to what they thought he would, should say. And unfortunately, it's not the best of substitutions. It does not mean church. The word that Jesus used, by the way, in Greek is ekklesia. Not a religious term. It was used all the time in secular society. It did not mean church did not mean house of the Lord, which, by the way, that's the direct translation of church, is house of the Lord or temple. And it definitely didn't mean temple because that's the last thing Jesus wanted them thinking, was temple. Because the temple represented Judaism, which was all about the old covenant, the old Mosaic law that was in Jerusalem. And so Jesus was coming not to to do away with that, but to fulfill that. And then to bring about something brand new. Not to add on to, but to bring about something. So the last thing he wanted them thinking was temple. So he would never have used that word. He was trying to completely change the way they thought from I am going to church or I am going to the house of the Lord to I am the house of the Lord. When Jesus said, I will build my church in Matthew 16, I will build my church And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He wasn't talking about a place. He wasn't talking about bricks and mortar. He was talking about a people. The word that he used wasn't religious at all. Look at the screen. Ecclesia was a secular term used to describe a gathering, an assembly of people for a specific purpose. Father, I pray one more time that you would anoint your word and your servant, open our hearts and our minds to hear. Let it be prophetic and powerful and life-changing. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. So last week, I talked about this realignment. We're, gonna, we're, we're trying to realign ourselves as a body, as a gathering, not to the church down the street, what they might be doing that seems successful, but to the New Testament, a realignment to the New Testament. And one of the things I thought we... I felt like the Spirit was telling us is to remember what is sacred. 
Remember what is sacred. I think it was a significant message to our church. The more I pray about it, the more I think about it. If you missed it, please go back. But not just to the gathering, but to each of us individually as well. Because until we understand in both our head and our heart who we truly are in Christ, we're never going to be the church or the gathering that God has called us to be. Jesus came, as I said, to make all things new and make something, listen, beautiful out of our broken lives. So things, everybody say things. Things are no longer sacred. People are. Jesus didn't come and die on a cross to save and redeem things. He came to save people. He came to save you. And me. Earlier this week, <laughs> I chuckled because you'll hear in a second, but I, I thought I knew where we were going today in the message. I thought I had it all figured out. I had it all planned out. I was going to teach one of my favorite scriptures about the church from Ephesians chapter 4. If any of you study the Bible, you know exactly what that is. It's unequivocally the most concise and clear picture of what the ecclesia is supposed to look like, how leaders are supposed to act, how we're supposed to work together and build each other up, each of us doing our own part. I love it. I love it. (laughs) But then I, I pulled the scripture over into my Word document. I began to work on the sermon, and it just wasn't happening. I felt no peace about what was going on. I'm like, Lord, this is like really good. What? What? Why can't I get a piece about that? So I did something very novel. I prayed. <laughs> and I prayed like this. Have you ever prayed and sort of argued at the same time with God? I'm glad I'm not the only one. I said, Lord, I want to teach from Ephesians 4. But... What do you want to say to your church this Sunday? Crazy prayer, right? That I would actually pray that. Thank you. I was just sarcastic. Okay. And I couldn't believe it. But he didn't quote Ephesians 4. And I think I may have to extend the series past Thanksgiving because I am going to preach Ephesians 4. But in my spirit, I heard the Father simply say, listen, tell my people that I love them. Tell my people that I love them and that I want what is best for them. And I always have. But also tell them the best for them is connected to me, not the world. The best for them is found, listen, in loving each other as I first loved them. The best for them is found in serving one another as I serve them. The best is found in unity with one another. The same unity that my son prayed for only hours before he went to the cross. Tell them the gathering that will please me will be the group of people who love each other as I loved you. (laughs) Now, this was not the message I was expecting to preach. I'm a details guy. I'm a strategic planner. 
I like to connect the dots and lay out the plan. That's why I, next level, I thrive in that. I love that. I love to cast vision and to say how. I want to know the how. Is anybody wired like me? I, the what is important and the why is even more important, but I'm all about the how. How are we going to do it? Now, you may not be that way. You may be like, it doesn't matter. I have faith. I have faith too, but I like to know the how. I'm the way I'm wired. And Ephesians 4 is the how. I need to be delivered this morning to this thing. No, I'm just kidding. Ephesians, it's actually the what, the why, and the how. It's like something you can really sink your teeth into. You really need to read it. It's your homework before the next time. But that's not what he said. This is all about people. And with my personality, I'm not always the best with people. It's God has a huge sense of humor putting me as a pastor. I've said it before. One pastor said this, the church would be great if it weren't for all the people. Come on, y'all, loosen up a little bit. God's working. God's still working. What's that old song? God's still working on me. Yeah. Y'all are like, what? He's lost it. But then God did what he always does. And he gently reminded me that the gathering, duh, is all about people. Not programs. Not plans, not schedules, not strategic planning. People. Now, the plan is important. That's where Paul's letters comes in. We're going to get there. That's where Ephesians 4 comes in. But here's the deal. If we don't get the love part right, we're never going to get the other part right. We're going to end up circling back around. We're going to be like the children of Israel out in the wilderness, just circling for years and years, trying to figure out what's wrong. Oh, we need to realign. We need to figure this out. We need to pray. And Jesus is going, it's, you're not getting it. You've got to get the love part right. You've got to hear what I said about love and what I demonstrated about love for each other, or the other stuff's going to go by the wayside. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. Because everything hinges on what Jesus says and does on the night before his crucifixion. Let's go there. John 13. John 13, beginning with verse 1. On the screen, it's in the New Living Translation. It says, before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave the world and return to his father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. The disciples knew that Jesus loved him, loved them. He had demonstrated that for three years, but that night there was something different in the air. There was something going on. There was something significant happening, and they knew it. Something was different. Verse 2, it was time for supper. Somebody say supper. Oh, I got you thinking about the wrong thing now, didn't I? And the devil had already prompted Judas. Notice he said prompted not forced, prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. I want you to understand something about Judas. God did use Judas' betrayal of Jesus in his overall sovereign plan, but God did not make Judas betray Jesus, and neither did the devil. From the beginning, from the start, Judas was about Judas and not Jesus. He thought Jesus was going to be some revolutionary leader 
that was going to raise up an effective army against Rome, and he wanted to be close to him. He's like, if I can get close to this guy, I'm going to be at the front of the line. I'm going to be in leadership. My name is going to count. I'm going to do something, so I'm going to stay close to this guy. And then he watched Jesus for three years, the miracles, the Sermon on the Mount, all of the stuff that he did, and he never got it. He never shifted. He never pivoted. He never stopped thinking worldly. He never stopped thinking worldly. He never got to the heavenly part. He never shifted. And his self-centeredness opened the door to the influence of the enemy. Let me say that again. His self-centeredness opened the door to Satan's influence and it will do the same thing in our lives. And of course, Satan... (laughs) He thought if he could manipulate enough people into killing Jesus, that the mission of redemption would be over, canceled, gone, and he would win. Little did either of them know that Jesus dying was the biggest part of the plan. Because if Jesus didn't die, there could be no forgiveness of sin. If Jesus didn't die, there could be no empty tomb. Judas and Satan didn't have a clue. Because self-centered people don't see anything but themselves. Look at the screen. People who are unwilling to break free from self-centered behavior will never see or understand the ways of God. I got three amens, but it's true anyway. Why is that true? Because all they see is themselves. All they understand is what they want in that moment. The result? Well, when their life is going well, it's fine. Matter of fact, you might have a best friend this way. They they may be the funnest person in the room when life is going well. But when things go south, and it always does at some point, watch out. Because they will become the most miserable person to be around that you can imagine. They will put that over on you. And then they'll start looking for somebody to blame. And guess who they will? Come on. It's not them. It's never their fault. You just thought of somebody, didn't you? Don't don't say anything. (laughs) Especially if they're sitting next to you. No, I was just kidding. We'll get there. We'll get there. With Judas, it ended in utter, complete tragedy. But it didn't have to. Because there was another man who failed Jesus three times that very night. There was another man who denied even knowing Jesus three times. The last time, he cussed out a middle school girl in the courtyard, blankety-blank, I don't know him. We know it was Peter, but the difference between Peter and Judas is that Peter would eventually admit his failure. He would bring it to Jesus. I can feel this. He came to, to, to the shores of Galilee after the resurrection, after Jesus had been crucified, after his failure. He met Jesus on the shore. He, he, he was forgiven. Jesus restored him, and Jesus recommissioned him as the first pastor of the New Testament church. Why? Because Peter knew he couldn't heal himself. He knew it couldn't stay in him. It was going to destroy him unless he got it out. And so he gave it over to Jesus. Look at the screen. There is life after failure when you give it to Jesus. 
I said there is life after failure. When you give it, it's a good thing because we all fail. But if you allow that thing to stay in you, and, and, and it, James says it gets bigger and bigger and then it destroys. It eats you up. It takes over. Now here's, here's self-evaluation time, okay? If you know, yeah, in church, it's all right. Safe place. If you know that you lean towards self-centered behavior, God can do a work in your life. God can break that thing off. But you have to ask him to. And then you have to allow him to pull that chisel out and start working. And that's never fun. It's never pleasant. It's never comfortable. But oh, how we need it. Pastor, what in the world does this have to do with the church? What in the world does that whole thing have to do with the gathering, with this series? Everybody look at me. Everything. Everything. Many of our churches in America are full of self-centered people, only interested in what the church can do for them or their little family and not what they can do for the kingdom. It's like Judas all over again. And, And what we end up with is churches that are no more than social clubs. And pastors who are too afraid to say or do anything radical, you know, like preach actually from the word of God and allow him to do the rest. And, you know, we end up with they're scared of losing their money, people. They're scared of offending somebody with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the gospel always offends before it saves. Let me say that one more time. The gospel always offends before it saves. It's called conviction. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. But the work of conviction always draws to. Y'all, conviction is different than condemnation. The devil condemns. The devil pushes you away from God. The Holy Spirit convicts in order to draw you to him. And the gospel, if it's working in our life, will always do that. What happened with Judas has everything to do with the church. It has everything to do with this series, with the gathering. Now, I know that's hard preaching. But I'm teaching this, I want you to hear me, from a place of experience. With my personality, I've said this before, I'm introverted. I'm very focused, which helps me in my job. I'm very focused. But the tendency with someone who was wired that way I'm glad Kathy's downstairs helping with the kids. She'd be like, amen. No. (laughs) The tendency, if you know you're like that, you know what I'm talking about. And so this is something that I have to think about and pray about and battle every single day. Some days I win and some days I lose. But I'm not giving up the battle and neither can you. Neither can you. Because the example that Jesus is about to show us in the next few verses is the antithesis of selfish. And what he's going to show us is the foundation. I want you to hear me. It's the foundation. How many builders in the house know how important a foundation is? If we try to do Ephesians 4 without this, it's going to fall down. This is the foundation for everything we are trying to do. Verse 3. 
Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God, so he got up from the table. Everybody do a drum roll for me. That was pretty good. A lot better than the early service, I have to admit. Jesus knew who he was. Jesus knew he was the Son of God, the Messiah, the Chosen One. He knew he was the Savior, God in the flesh. So he gets up from the table and he pulls a crown out from underneath the table and puts it on his head and he makes them all worship. Is that what he did? Verse 4, so he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with a towel. You may know this, you may not. This was, a, this was not a weird thing. This was a cultural thing, but usually it was the servant or the slave in the house that would do this job. If the person couldn't afford a servant, the lowest person on the rung in the home would be the one to wash the people's feet because their feet were nasty. Nobody had washed Jesus' feet as he came in. They were probably worried about who was going to be first and second and third in line to the top. We know that's true. That's what they were talking about. But Jesus got down and he washed their feet. Nasty. Now, see... How many of you have ever been involved in a a foot washing service? Raise your hand, anybody? This is not real, real common. I mean, obviously, it's kind of a, may not, you may be like, that's weird. When we do a foot washing service, when I've been involved, you, you, you wash your feet before you go. Okay? You get a pedicure before you go because it's symbolic. Okay? It's symbolic. We, nobody wants to see nasty, ugly, you know. This wasn't symbolic. It was symbolic, but it wasn't. Their feet were nasty. They had walked through all kinds of stuff with sandals on. And Jesus yet does this. Skip to verse 12. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again and sat down and asked, Do you get, do you understand what I just did? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right because that's what I am. Hallelujah. I am. Y'all get the inference? And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. Was he just talking about the physical exercise of washing feet? No. Jesus, listen, was painting them a dramatic picture of what it looked like to follow him. He was showing them demonstrating to them how to treat each other, how to serve each other, how to love each other. Look at the screen. The basis for Christian behavior is the sacrificial love of Jesus. That is our baseline. That is the foundation, not the Ten Commandments, not the 600 other laws of Moses. This right here, the love of Jesus, his demonstration is our baseline for how we are to treat and act in this world. Jesus' love for the men in this room, listen, rather than his authority over them, is what he used to instruct them. And he does the same for us. Look at the screen. Jesus leads us and inspires us with his example of love, not his title as king. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. 
He never played the God card. He never used his title. He always demonstrated what he wanted them to do. If you're, how many bosses and managers in the house? Raise your hand. You need to pay attention. If you want a good company, if you want people to be loyal to you and to appreciate the company and your organization, lead by example, not by title. And it's the same in our life. Fathers, mothers, same thing with our kids. Skipping to verse 34, now here is where we get the most significant, one of the most significant verses in the entire New Testament. John 13, 34, he says, so now I am giving you a new, everybody say new, a new commandment. What could it be? The guys in the room are like, "Um, Jesus, you can't mess with Moses. You know, they knew there were already 613 laws in the Mosaic Covenant. Is this going to be number 614? Like, Jesus, you... We love you. Now, Jesus wasn't going to add to anything. This was something brand new. Jesus wasn't going to add to anything. For the last three years, Jesus had been setting the stage. He had been throwing hints out there, but now he's laying the foundation, and this was the moment. Look at verse 34. So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Now look at me. Don't look at the verse. Look at me. They're like, we do. We do. And he's like, love each other just as I have loved you. And they were really, their eyes were really open the next day when he was hanging on a cross. And then listen to what he says. Because your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Your love and how you treat each other and how you serve one another, how you think of each other above yourself will be proof to the ones who are outside looking in that you are who you say you are, that you are truly my disciples. Your words mean very little. What you profess doesn't really count. It's what you do. James says faith without works is dead. We would say in the South, the proof is in the... There you go. That connected. Paul would say it this way in Galatians 5, 6. He said, the the only thing that counts... This isn't on the screen. I added it yesterday. The only thing that counts... Everybody say counts. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. He's not talking about salvation, folks. He's not talking about how we get saved. You can't get saved by working for it. He's talking about expressing that salvation through love. It's proof. It's proof that you're following Jesus. There was an evangelist, and I can't remember his name, and I couldn't find it, from the 1800s. He would have these huge crusades outside. He would have hundreds come down to get saved. And I remember this article, like, I mean, this stood out to me. One of his assistants said, how many do you think, and there were hundreds down there, how many do you think are making decisions for Christ? And he said, I don't know, ask me in a year. 
I don't know, ask me in a year when we come back and see who actually are following through with what they have committed to. Woo. Jesus painted them a masterpiece. When he washed their nasty feet, he demonstrated a love that they had never experienced before. And just hours from that moment where he was washing his feet, they would watch him die and show the full extent of his love for him, for them. So here's the question. How can we love like Jesus? How can we love like Jesus? Paul gives us one idea in Philippians 2, 5. He says, in your relationships with one another. Say one another. That's what we're talking about. Have the same mindset as Christ, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Again, he didn't play the God card. He didn't use his title. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. The real word there is slave. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Let me say it again. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So Paul is saying this is how Jesus loved. And this is how you must love each other. Look at me. With humility. Not thinking of yourself low or low self-esteem. That's not what humility is. It's preferring the other person and their needs over yourself. Loving each other with a grace that is quick to help and reach out instead of kick and judge. Loving each other with service. I want you to hear me. Until we get this part right, Ephesians 4 and all the other stuff won't work. All of the cool stuff that I want to preach so badly and all the plans, until we get the love part right, that will be tainted and weak, watered down. And that is exactly what we have in Western Christianity. But I'm not satisfied. Come on, folks. I'm not satisfied. And I know you're not either. Or you wouldn't be here. The love of Jesus, the way he loved and asked us to love, must be the filter for everything. Does that make sense? No? Y'all are quiet. Let me put it this way. Look at the screen. How we love each other determines the impact we have on everybody else. How we take care of each other and love each other and serve each other in here affects everything we do out there. At the beginning, I told you what, that God wanted me to remind you just how much he loves you and wants what is best for you. This is what is best for you. For you. It's connected to him and him alone. It's connected to following him in this life. Here's the big idea. Even the most broken among us can begin to love like Jesus. Let me let that settle in. Even the most broken among us 
can begin to love like Jesus. We all need a little extra help from time to time. Somebody say amen. This life is like a roller coaster. And we all need a little extra help from time to time. But when we are truly connected to the body of Christ, we should never only be a consumer. Even on our worst day, even on our most confusing, confusing, most disillusioned day, if we follow Jesus, if we are following Him, focusing on Him, we can love like Him as well. We can do it. This is the example Jesus set. And this is the example that will lead others to Him. Bow your heads.